I think it's been um, the longest I've been actually out of the pulpit. Four weeks is a long time. Sometimes I wonder if I can get back and do it again, you know? And so let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're continuing to move through this book, great epistle. And we have been looking at and considering in this last section of the book the discipline of the Christian concerning suffering. And so that's what we are going to be uh, looking at this morning. And so uh, keep in mind that for the believer, suffering is part of the Christian's lot. Of course, for some Christians, suffering will be to a lesser degree and for others to a greater degree. And so the Apostle Peter is writing in this epistle to the scattered church really shortly before or after the burning of Rome. Historians surmise that Nero, who was in charge at that time, had Rome, have, had Rome burned and then, of course, blamed it on the Christians. In any case, the church entered into a 200-year period of Christian persecution. In fact, if you look at your Bibles, you will see that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we're not there yet, but it says it's really d- dealing with the dubious character of the enemy that is displayed against believers, and that character is, says this in five, verse 5, 8, First Peter, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So that means that the enemy against our souls, because we're Christians, has its, his claws in suffering. The attacks are designed to drive the Christian off course. As he wrestles with the Christian, Satan's attacks in suffering are designed to deceive and to distort the truth. So it really brings us to a place where we have to ask ourselves, do we really understand the truth in the Word of God concerning suffering? Because we are all as believers going to enter into some type of suffering in our Christian walk. And we're going to do it for this reason, because you're a Christian. That's it. Because you're in Christ, you are a target of the enemy. So Peter writes in this section of Scripture a, a, a really a sobering uh, part of the Word of God that helps us to discern when that suffering comes. Not if it comes, when it comes. It will come. And it will come in all kinds of forms, in all kinds of ways, at all kinds of times. And so we are to look at it from a biblical perspective so we can hold our ground, so we can 
stand firm in what we believe, but we have to know what we believe. So there are, the enemy has a strategy. We can't defeat the enemy himself as a believer, but we can defeat his strategy because God's strategy is definitely in the word of God and that we should use it. So these attacks can be identified in five different ways. In each instance, there is a corresponding antidote coupled with the correct biblical understanding of suffering and persecution. So let's identify, first of all, the enemy's strategy and then examine the instruction for biblical, to have a proper outlook on biblical suffering. And here it is, when... We are believers, and we do enter into a time of despair, suffering, persecution. Because we're believers, one of the first things that's going to happen, it's going to be somewhat of a surprise. All right, now, remember, but this is Satan's way of attacking us. Uh, In any warfare, a significant tactic is the enemy's element of surprise. And why does he do that? In order to catch his opponent off guard. If the enemy can catch a believer off guard, then he can exploit their vulnerabilities, their weaknesses, and their sin. He can exploit that. So that would be the first thing. The second thing would be that of depression or gloom. That would be a second attack. If the enemy, in other words, can get you to to respond to the fiery ordeal as if you are on your own with only darkness and hopelessness and despair before you, then he can get you or keep you in a mindset of depression or gloom. If only the Christian can be sunk down in gloom, then they may throw in the towel and quit and leave. A third attack would be that of deception. In other words, if the enemy can get you to inaccurately assess the reason for your suffering, that is, you can't discern whether your suffering suffering is because of your own sinful behavior or not then he could severely cripple a believer and keep them in their guilt. And then a fourth attack that would come is that of shame. If a Christian can be made to be ashamed, even when they have committed no sin, then the enemy can cripple a believer by causing them to doubt their salvation and twist their understanding as to the character of God and to think that God is against them instead of the correct biblical understanding is that God is for the believer. And they are, as Roman tells us, super conquerors in Christ Jesus and that nothing can be against them or condemn them in God's court 
And then a fifth attack would be that of unbelief, maybe the most deadliest of all of them, of lack of trust. If the enemy can get a believer to doubt God at all levels, then he can get a believer to think wrongly. To think, I can't believe this is happening to me. It must be happening because God's against me. I'm out of his will. And they become doubtful and afraid and will not know what to believe or who to trust. So in other words, these attacks and his strategy is going to come against us at some time. Not all of them at one time, maybe one of them, maybe one here, one there, maybe one sooner, one later, but he knows how to attack a believer, but believers are to be maturing, they are are to be growing in the truth, so they know what to do. So we we must be reminded as Christians that it is not, it's never easy to be a Christian. It was William Barclay who once said, the Christian life brings its own loneliness, its own unpopularity, its own problems, its own sacrifices, and its own persecutions because we're now connected to Christ. And remember how they dealt with Christ. Well, they're going to deal with us in quite the same manner, especially if we are living the Christian life, and we are vocal about it. We are not ashamed of it. We're living it out there. We're putting the principles into practice every day. So in our passage this morning, we are to learn some great principles that we should keep in mind so that we can hold to suffering with the right biblical perspective. So let's learn together this morning from our passage at least five biblical outlooks necessary for the Christian to prevail in any kind of suffering or persecution. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we look at the Word of God, I pray, Lord, that help us in our heart to engage and understand the truth. Because we know, Lord, that if we know the truth and the biblical principles in the Word of God, we will be able to stand firm against any of these attacks. So help us, Lord, now to understand suffering in a biblical way and then respond to it as it comes our way. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, did you not notice that Satan tempts one to believe in the opposite direction of what the Scriptures actually teach. In other words, he knows the Bible well enough to be able to twist it to actually deceive a believer. So a believer has to know what it says. All right, so now, here's the first outlook. The first outlook necessary for the Christian to prevail in persecution, and it's found in verse number 12 of chapter 4 of 1 Peter. 
It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, let me just, at that point, here's the first thing, is that the first outlook is that a believer is to anticipate its inevitability. So Christian scripture affirms the inevitability of persecution against the true Christian church, which of, are comprised of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that? Because Christians bring an exclusive message of the gospel that really bears an ever-growing characteristic of a transformed life because the Spirit of God is making them holy. So the Christian brings to the world the standard of and the message of Jesus Christ, and that message is a narrow message. There's only one person who can save us from eternal destruction and the condemnation of sin, and that's Jesus Christ alone. He's the only one who could do that. So the Christian brings to the world this message that is different than what the world is doing. So then the Christian is a kind of conscience to any society in which it exists. The world and its system does not like when it is told the truth because their conscience is pricked by the truth and then and their worldview, and of course, then they respond in a way that is usually negative. It's like what it says in chapter 4, look at verse number 3 and 4. Well, look at verse 4, when it mentions the lifestyle of someone who comes to Christ, and it says in verse 4, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. See, that's what their mode of operation is, is that they want to come against you because you're not running with them anymore. You're not partying with them anymore. You're not going along with the way they think anymore. And so God transforms your heart and mind, and you're going now in a direction opposite of what you used to do, right? And people start noticing that, and when you become convicted about it and you become serious about the Christian walk, then people do take notice. Family members take notice. And then they begin to say that you're brainwashed. Uh, they begin to say you're no longer fun to hang around with. They begin to say, oh, this is a religious phase you're going through. Uh, and, uh, you know, stop being holier than thou and come back and party with us. All right? Change your ways. What's, what's going on in your life now? And so this is what happens. And so mark it down. The Christian... The Christian's very goodness of what God is teaching them in their life can be an offense to the world because it's regarded by the world as a weakness, a weakness can, that can be attacked and it can be manipulated. But a combat soldier is not surprised when the bullets start flying. They don't think that it's a strange thing that they find themselves in the middle of a combat situation. They expect it. In fact, they have been training for that very day. Now, if you've been following along at 1 Peter, 1 Peter did not start with chapter 4. He started with chapter 1. 
And remember, chapter 1 was what? That first section was we are to deal with our salvation and understand it because it is important for all Christians to have a good understanding and grasp of their own salvation in Christ Jesus so they know that they are saved and what it means to be saved and what God's going to do while you're saved, leaving you in this world as an alien and a sojourner heading home, right? So that's the first thing. The second section was focused on submission, different ways Christians are to submit, coupled with the characteristics and attitudes appropriate for proper Submission that is pleasing to the Lord. And of course, submission, of course, today is a very uh, bad word, and it's not understood very well. But then it brings us to this third major section of that of suffering. Being ever prepared for any kind of trial or suffering that may come our way as believers. Also, last time in our passage, we examined three marks of a responsibly strong Christian community in view of the end, in view of we're moving towards the end. Actually, we are in the end times right now. We're moving towards Christ coming back again. We're moving towards that time. And so those three marks, as we consider the end, were the duties of prayer, seriously taking prayer, because prayer is our a line of defense against the enemy. And then the second mark, to practice the principles of love fervently within believe, in the believing community so the believing community could be strong. And then that third mark was the duties to use their spiritual gifts to serve the body uh, as a paramount necessity. That these are the, the duties all believers must practice so that Christians will be ready when suffering does come, the Christian will prevail in persecution when they soberly, first of all, anticipate its inevitability. I'm not surprised when it comes. Why? Because the Bible told me. Don't be surprised, right? So then that leads me to the second one, and it's this, that the second outlook necessary for the Christian to prevail in persecution is to consider its purpose. Now, notice what it says in verse number 12. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Now, of course, that fiery ordeal is not talking about a light persecution here. This is a heavy one, right? That comes against you, which, look at look what it says, which comes upon you for your what? For your testing. For your testing, as though some th strange thing were happening to you. So we don't think it's strange, but what is the purpose of the suffering or the persecution that may come against us and actually is the antidote against the attack of surprise? Well, it's this. Persecution is a test for me. It's a test for my faith. In other words, I'm, I'm not surprised because it is happening to test me. So persecution is the test of the reality of a person's faith. Faith is seen as a refi refining process in order to test its genuineness. So it comes for what? For my, my benefit, for your benefit as a believer, to what? To show how genuine are you as a believer? 
how much have you been putting into practice biblical principle? See, so we have to ask some questions. You know, how, how mature are you in the faith since you first called on Christ to save you? Has it been a year, two years, 10 years, 20 years? Well, what's happened in that time? Have you been growing and maturing and becoming stronger and stronger in the faith? Has the world, becoming, has the world been dimmer than it used to be? Do the, the lures of the world still pull you? Does, has sin been overcome in your life and has no longer authority over you because it's no longer your master? See, all those things are what a believer is asking themselves, but a believe, believe me, when things are going night, fine, well, and dandy in your life, you don't learn a thing. You don't test your faith. You think everything's going fine. But when... The pressure is put on. When, when some kind of situation comes into your life and that you are agitated in your soul and that you have to deal with something that you maybe never dealt with before, then that is going to be, and that could come from your family, it can come from a husband and wife, wife relationship, it can come from your job, it can come from anywhere, but that's coming into your life. Don't think it's strange. It's coming to test you. Right to see how have you matured in Christ since you have believed in Christ and have you considered the purpose of your suffering that you're going through right now or have gone through? Have you considered it, it is for your testing? And the testing may be to reveal sin that you have not been, been putting off. It may reveal your uh, self-centeredness your pride, your anger, your idolatry, your lack of forgiveness, your worldliness. It may reveal all those kind of things as a believer. And, of course, our response to those things is to deal with them. All right, so this testing comes in to you and I. And if we do not consider biblically the purpose of our suffering, then we are probably not responding to a, a particular unique brand of suffering in the right way. We're probably responding in the wrong way. For the Christian to prevail in persecution, they must consider the purpose through the lens of Scripture. All right? That definitely comes after not thinking it's a surprise, and now I know the purpose. What's the purpose of it? To test me, to test you, right? To pass the, pass the exam. You know, the Christian faith is the only place that you can get an F, and that's a good grade. What do I mean by that? F is for faithful, right? Because, really, God wants us to be faithful. That's it. He doesn't want you to be successful like the world says it is. He wants you just to be faithful, to do what you know you ought to be doing as a believer. And that, that, that just doesn't happen necessarily when you're, just, you're serving in a particular way. That happens 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all right? You know when you lose it during the day. You may even lose it with nobody around. You just get angry about something, and you, you start yelling at the wall. You have to ask yourself, why am I angry about this thing? Why am I yelling at the wall thinking that wall is a person? 
And that person has a name, but they're just not there. And you're yelling at that person. See, it's revealing in our heart where we're at and what we need to deal with. And take those things seriously and put them aside because they are all for testing us as to where we're at as a believer. And we, ought, we all need to know that. That's why you go through the grades. Every grade, you get tested, tested, right? Can you graduate from high school? Well, did you, did you make the grade, right? Can you go into college? Did you make the grade? Can you go into graduate school? Well, did you make the grade? It's all about the GPA, right? It's all about what your grade is. And so as a believer, we ought to know the grade. How are we doing? Have we passed this test? And then that brings us to a third outlook found in verse number 13 and 14 of our passage. And that third outlook is uh, the nest, the, for a Christian prevail in persecution is to respond correctly. And that means with a proper attitude and proper conduct. Notice, notice what it says in verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So what is our response to all suffering and persecution? Rejoice. Now you say, wow, that is hard to do. No, that's impossible to do. Matter of fact, you cannot do it on your own, with your own ability, in your own power, in your own will. You have to do that with the power of God upon you, right? That's the only way. And this is also a way that you know that you're passing the test, that when these troubles come into your life, can you genuinely say, I'm rejoicing because I know God is good and I know he's sending these things into my life for my benefit, and he is for me. He is not against me. Now, why are the reasons for my rejoicing? Look at verse number 13 again. All right, we rejoice because of our connection to Jesus Christ. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. See, the antidote against depression and gloom that could come about if we don't look at it correctly is found in the believer's understanding of their vital union with Jesus Christ. That when they suffer, it is because they are living the Christian life before the world in a manner that pleases the Lord. And who takes notice of that? The enemy takes notice of that. He doesn't want you to display the glory of God in the world. He doesn't want people coming up to you and saying, why are you different? Who do you worship? Why do you go to church every Sunday? Why do you always talk about the Bible? See, following in the footsteps of Jesus means that Christians under duress are to respond to this suffering with proper conduct coupled with an attitude of rejoicing. So persecution is really sharing in the sufferings of Christ when a person has to suffer for his or her Christianity. That person is walking in the way of the master and sharing the cross of his master or her master. 
that he carried. And remember, these Christians in this context were insulted maliciously, verbally abused, threatened, publicly humiliated for the name of Christ. And so, of course, some even died. Not all were martyred, but some died. The attacks were not just somebody taking you to jail or somebody uh, beating on you. The attacks are verbal. The attacks are behind the scenes. They're manipulative attacks against believers. This principle of truth occurs more than once in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul said, preparing young Timothy to take on the church of Ephesus, he says, for this reason I suffer these things. What did he suffer? He suffered imprisonment for preaching and teaching the word of God, but he also suffered from those who would turn away once they started following the truth and turn away and drop off. He was suffering from people departing from the faith. You know, when you see somebody walk in the faith for maybe some time and all of a sudden they're not there anymore, uh, that's heartbreaking. You know, and you wonder, did I do something? Did we not do something we should have been doing? And we, answer, we ask all these questions, but sometimes they walk away because they're not believers. And if you notice what happened here, at the end of that verse, it says, and then they release, it says that, first of all, they flog them and order them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them in verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. What do they do? Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the shame of his name. Now, now brethren, that is not worldly thinking. That is not even regular, everyday thinking. This is out-of-the-box type of thinking. This is, this is where the Spirit of God brings us on how to, how to have a worldview that's, that's honoring to the Lord. To be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. To be willing to be maligned for Christ's sake. Criticized for Christ's sake. Passed over for, for, for promotion on our job for Christ's sake. Because they, they didn't like something about your Christianity, about your behavior, about your goodness, about not willing to, to look the other way when things go, are going wrong or are being done improperly. You're not willing to do that. And so, see, that, the world takes notice of that, and they'll get back at you for that. So remember, if we suffer for Christ, it is, it is not a penalty. It is a privilege. So then the proper attitude to suffering will result in greater rejoicing. Because if you look at verse number 13 again, if you notice what it says there, it says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Then notice this, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. That's double rejoicing that we have as believers. In other words, there's a present joy that we have in this world, but there is going to be a great joy, a future joy on that great day when it really counts, when Christ comes for his church and he comes as the judge. And what happens is that we rejoice because 
the purpose of rejoicing in the midst of trials is because at the coming of Christ, the glory of Christ will be shared with believers when Christ's full glory is unveiled before the whole world. And we will be part of that glory. We will be part of the reflection of the glory of God on that day. And believe me, that is the day that no one, everyone, every believer is going to be rejoicing with exaltation. That's like a, you know, an exclamatory there. There's no better word to use to say it's going to be a great rejoicing. And see, that's the promises we have now while we live in this world. And it's not easy living in this world. It's not easy living. But we do know that. And then notice also in our passage in verse number 14, where it says, and if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So in other words, we are to rejoice secondly because of your connection to the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have good biblical theology, you'll find out that when you become a believer, one of the things that happens when you confess Christ as your Lord and Savior is the Spirit of God comes to permanently indwell you, right? He permanently takes on residence in you and in his church. That's what he does. And so the believer is to hedge against depression and gloom by Holy Spirit rejoicing, whether you are involved in a lesser or a greater degree of, of, of suffering, be rejoicing. And the result of suffering is that God is near you for present blessing. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, right? And remember, when, that, when the Bible says you're blessed, it means that, that God's near you for good, He's not against you. He's near you for good. God is, in other words, with us. He is saying here in this passage, listen, when you go through these times, these times, this is great encouragement for you in suffering and me in persecution, is that you're not alone. You're not walking in hopeless darkness and despair. God's with you. He's with you with his help. He's with you with his comfort. He's with you with his support. He's with you with his presence. He's with his church. In the middle of life's problems and trials, God is right there with us. And to me, that is, that, that's a great, and it should be to you also, a great encouragement to know that. Now, could you see how the Lord adjusts our understanding and thinking of any kind of thing that would come into our life to, to deal with it in the right way so we can actually rejoice and then to know, no, God's not against me. He's blessing me. We say, well, how can God bless me if in the middle of this trial? It looks like everything's falling apart in my life. Well, don't look there. Look to the Lord and to the Word of God, right? Because a lot of times things look messy when they're really not. Sometimes messiness leads to organization. And the Lord has to point those things out in our life. So this, this verse right here brings to our mind the Old Testament passage that refers to the character of the king at the end time peaceful kingdom where it says in Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. What spirit in Isaiah? the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
So while we're passing through enemy territory heading home, the Holy Spirit is enabling a Christian to maintain a consistent posture of rejoicing while enduring persecution with the right attitude and behavior, that of rejoicing. The worst persecution can be borne with joy when the eye is fixed on the revelation of Christ's glory and the unbound joy that awaits the faithful in the end. And then also, Christ's Spirit ensures that the glory of God is seen in believers, that people take notice of it. So, what is the reason why believers are blessed when reviled for the name of Christ? Well, in verse number 14, is because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory and of God rests on them. That's why we can rejoice. When the Old Testament used the term the glory of the Lord, referred to as the Shekinah glory, which really was the luminous glow of the very presence of God, what it meant is that God showed up. It meant that God was present and became, it became evident in the tabernacle and in the temple and the, and of God. Even where it says in Exodus, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So it's really when God showed up, the promise of God's presence in suffering and persecution that God will be with you and make you ready for his eternal glory. He will do that. That is his goal, and God accomplishes his goal. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, look over to chapter 5, verse number 10. Notice what it teaches there. It says, after you have suffered a little, a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you. See, notice what the word, he will himself do it. So in other words, God is not far away. He's imminent. He's near us. He's in our every day. He's working with his, his, his children every day close to them, and he knows everything that's going on in your life. And the person who suffers faithfully for Christ has something as one person said, of the glow of God's glory that rests upon them. And a good example of that would be, remember when Stephen in, in the book of Acts was being stoned to death? And it says this, that he, and fixing Stephen, fixing his gaze on him, Christ, heaven opens up, who all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So in other words, that was what was going on there, that there was his face of an angel that God was definitely there in their midst for protection, for showing his power, showing the presence of God. So the point here is if a Christian is to prevail in persecution, they must learn to respond to this suffering with a proper attitude and conduct, and that attitude is that of rejoicing. So the next one would be this, is that... A, 
the necessary uh, outlook for the Christian prevail in persecution is to examine the cause. The antidote against the attack of deception and confusion is found in the believer's ability to discern what's really going on in my own personal situation and circumstances. In other words, two questions come up. The first question would be this. Are you suffering for the wrong reasons? Is the cause of your suffering your own evil doing, your own sinful heart? All right, and of course, he brings that out in the passage in verse number 15, where he says this, and make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. In other words, there could be a time where somebody is suffering for their own sin and they don't realize it the reason why i have this trouble in my life is because of my own sin don't we have to consider that we do have to consider that and of course if it is then you need to repent of that sin and get get it out of your life so you can continue to worship and grow in the knowledge and wisdom of jesus christ and of course that last one there a troublesome meddler is actually, oh, another way to translate that is a mischief maker. Uh, an activity more subtle than the other ones, but maybe more diabolical. Somebody who's trying to spin the web behind the scene to manipulate people. And of course, we know people like that. But this could be done in the area of want, somebody wanting to covet what another person has, or it can be a political agitator. Or it can be somebody accusing Christians of sins that they're not committing that is contrary to the Christian lifestyle, and yet they're being accused of it. And it could be these sins too, murder, thief, being a thief, being an evildoer, being a mischief maker. They can accuse a Christian of all those things. Of course, suffering for any of these sins without repentance and faith in Jesus Christ could also reveal that one has never become a believer. They are not saved, and they need to become a believer. So suffering for evil doing always results in shame. Where it says in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name, never to be ashamed of being a believer. But a second question to ask is, are we suffering for the right reasons? Right? Is the cause of your suffering for that you're doing that which is good. Suffering for doing good results in no shame, but it also results in something else in our passage. It results in glorifying God in the name of Jesus Christ. The point being, if a Christian is to suffer for Christ, he must also in some way that his suffering bears glory to the name that that person bears. And of course, that would be Jesus Christ. That his lifestyle and his conduct should show that he does not deserve the suffering for any wrongdoing on his part or her part, except for being a Christian. 
I'm suffering for being a Christian by name and by attitude. As we looked in, in chapter 2, verse number 12 of 1 Peter, where it said there, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of, of visitation. So the antidote against the attack of shame is found in the believer's understanding of their secure position before God because of the name of Jesus Christ, in which there is no suffering or no shame in suffering righteously. So the Christian badge of honor is to suffer. So don't be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. Don't ever be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. Instead, glorify God in this name that you had the privilege to speak the truth, your privilege to show the attributes of God in your life, and accused of being on God's side, which is the right side. So they may be persecuted, they may persecute you, but they have not, you will never lose fellowship uh, with God for anything that comes into your life. But what does it mean to glorify God in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, Peter has already brought that out. One of them would be uh, in 1 Peter 3.15, acknowledging your faith in the middle of, uh, of distress, where it says there, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense of everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. In other words, that you are, you have an apologetic, you have a defense of the hope that is in you, and you have a reason for your faith in Christ, following him as your Lord and Savior, and your attitude towards the questioner would be that of gentleness and reverence. So that, both things going on there, truth, to proclaim it publicly, and then attitude is there, of that, as I'm glad to tell you about what the Lord's done in my life. And then another way would be maintaining a, a non-retaliatory response. If there insults come, if slander comes, uh, whether verbal or physical abuse comes, you're, gonna, you're going to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And remember, Jesus was nonviolent, all right? They said he was possessed by a demon. They said that he was a glutton and a wine-bibber. They said, uh, but Jesus never strayed from the word, from word or deed. He never got upset unjustly. He never used anyone for a laugh. Jesus suffered verbally, physically, and spiritually, and never threat, th threatened retaliation on his torments, but endured for us. So we can do the same by the power of the Spirit of God in our life when those times come. And then also, it could be, how do I glorify God in Christ? Keeping a lifestyle consistent with the name of Christ. I keep a Christian lifestyle. And remember, if you, if you think back on, if you've been around through the whole time in 1 Peter, you will, you will realize that we are citizens of another kingdom. So our mandate then on this earth as aliens and strangers is to live according to the standard of Christ. Keeping in mind our alien nationality and our temporary res residency on the earth, keeping in mind 
what God has done for us in salvation, keeping in mind who we are in Christ, keeping in mind we are in a spiritual warfare so that we are to avoid or keep ourselves free from the old impulses that belong to our flesh and the wars between our renewed spirit and our fallen nature, and keeping in mind that we have a new master, Christ, and a new relationship to sin, We are dead to sin and alive to righteousness, keeping in mind that the Holy Spirit who indwells us is making a changing us, a changing us through the truth of the Word of God in our minds so that we develop deep biblical convictions and in turn desire to do what is right and live in a pleasing manner before the Lord Jesus Christ in all our behavior and then keeping in mind that our inner commitment to live before God in all holy behavior is accompanied by a Christian duty to live responsively before unbelievers and then keeping in mind that we are to submit to a particular course of conduct so that we as followers of Christ can demonstrate before the world an alien lifestyle with the goal to proclaim the gospel and to win others to Christ so that they too become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And on the day of judgment, that they may give glory to God for adorning, for you adorning the gospel with a lifestyle, with your lifestyle, and with verbal proclamation. Now that, now that leads me to my last one, which I will not spend uh, much time on. I'll bring that up, up next time. And it's, it's simply this, that... Our outlook is, uh, our last outlook is to, necessary to prevail in persecution is to entrust everything to God. See, that's what we need need to do, entrust everything to God. Notice what it says in verse number 19. I'm skipping over uh, 17 and 18. I'm going to deal with them next week. It says, verse number 19, therefore, of course, inclusion of all he said, those also who suffer according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now that's important because that word entrust is a word that he's using here uh, means that the household of God must obey and live the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at conversion, a person, in a sense, deposits their soul with God, their creator, in whom they can trust and rely about everything. God, we can, we can, we can deposit our souls with God, right? And we can rely that he's going to do everything that he said he's going to do in our life. And of course, this word in trust means to place beside or to place before, to give over to, to commend to someone else. It actually is a technical term used for depositing money with a trusted friend. In ancient days, there were no banks and few real, real safe places in which to deposit money. It wasn't like today. So before a, a person would go on a journey, they would often, often leave their money in the safekeeping of a neighbor or a friend. And such a trust was regarded as one of the most sacred things in life. A friend 
was absolutely bound by all honor and all religion to return all the money intact and given to his safekeeping. So the best place to deposit your eternal soul for safekeeping is in the hands of the Creator. It's in the hands of Jesus Christ who bought and secured our salvation. That's where he's leading in this passage of Scripture. It's, it's like what Paul, again, says in the epistle of Timothy. He says this, For this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. In other words, God has it all covered. So when persecution comes, don't think it's strange that somehow God's against you or God has left you. If your outlook is biblical concerning suffering and persecution, you will prevail as you practice the necessary principles. You anticipate its inevitability. You consider its purpose, which is testing. You respond correctly, which is rejoicing. You examine the cause. and uh, Is this coming into my life because of my own sin or because I'm living the Christian life? And then I entrust everything to God. Lord, take it. I'm depositing everything with you. All my eggs are in the all one basket, right? And I can, I can rest, put my head on the pillow at night, no matter what happens in my life, and thank God that he has taken care of everything in my life and that we are to expect these very things. So we're never taken by surprise. But it also brings us to the place where we become soldiers. We become strong. We learn how to put our armor on to stand up against the wiles of the enemy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for the things contained in this passage that, Lord, th this, one, this is one area that seems to be very confusing today. And sometimes we don't know what to do with things and how to, where to put things when they come into our life that are confusing. But, Lord, we see from this passage of Scripture that we can handle these things in a way that is biblical and that will, you will enter into it, that we can entrust everything to you, knowing, Lord, that what we deposit with you is safe and secure for all eternity. Nothing can rob us of the salvation that you've given us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, nothing. And for this, Lord, we are more than conquerors in this world. So let us live this way. And Lord, if these times come, enable us to respond in a way that brings honor to your name. And I pray this in Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, this morning we do have our Lord's table. And so let's have our men come forward as we prepare to pass out the elements. And I do want to re, uh, remind you that the Lord's table is for believers only. And we should partake of the Lord's table because, number one, it's commanded by Christ. Number two, it confirms 
in believers their true interest in Christ. And then, of course, it manifests the visible difference between those who belong to the church and the rest of the world. It declares our different standing in God's family. Uh, and, of course, coming to the table is really we're placed at the banquet table. And before we come, we are to examine uh, ourselves. We are to confess our sin. We are to discern the body. We are to declare uh, the death of Christ. We are to be thankful. We are to be joyful. We, are to, we know that we're glory-bound. And so it declares our belief in the new covenant, and that new covenant was ratified by the blood of Christ, and the blood of Christ meaning the death of Christ. And it declares our belief in the physical death of the Lord and his resurrection and his return. He is coming back again. So we're to do this until he comes. So let's take a few minutes to examine ourselves, to prepare ourselves for the Lord's table. And as you do that, I'll come back, read the scripture, and we'll pass out the elements this morning.